Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to start in verse 2 in the reading, though uh, only focusing for the sermon on verses 13 through 16. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 2, And Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be, removed, be restored? I'm sorry, a slightly different reading there. How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's ask God's blessing. Oh Lord, would you please bless the reading and preaching of your word. Give life and light in our minds and hearts and give faith for Christ's sake. Amen. It's interesting the time in which we live when we're able to, due to new science and new um, equipment and new machines, uh, able to see inside the body in ways that we're, we're not able to do 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago or whatever else. And uh, one of the things that is interesting is they're beginning to understand how the brain actually works. Uh, one of the things that I find interesting is they're able now to see how uh, the exact way that people learn at different ages, you can see how the brain kind of rewires itself. Uh, one of the things that they're studying now that's intriguing is uh, how the science of memory works and how the brain, the, the process the brain actually goes through uh, in, in recalling memory and what happens on the inside is so interesting and in how... Um, out of all your senses, you probably know this already, but smell is the one that's most directly connected to memory. 
And some of you are like, well, that explains a lot, right? I don't remember anything. I can't smell and therefore can't remember. But you know, you've had that moment, haven't you, where maybe you smelled a smell that you haven't smelled in 20 or 30 or 40 years. And it takes you back to a specific moment in time. And you're like, oh, I know exactly what that was. Or I I remember exactly where I was or the certain feeling or experience and how you can recall it, right? Uh, I know for us with young kids, of the smell of the crayon box that my sister and I had as a kid, like my kids can take me back to my own childhood just with one specific smell and how it's so interesting how it, it kind of brings us back. The other thing I find so interesting in this kind of process is the brain learns and, and remembers and recalls and particularly connected to smell is how sometimes it recalls so strongly, but not correctly. It'll remember, but not remember accurately or not remember enough. I love this one because you could take a group of five different people and have them tell the same experience from last week and all of the details are completely different. Well, I thought you were there. I know I was there. How come we had a different experience? And we remember things. So it's such an interesting process. My struggle in preaching through the Gospels and preaching through Matthew particularly is this is a, a, a part of Scripture that I think we tend to have very strong aromas connected to it, strong smell, strong memory. We recall so much of this book. The problem is, as well-intended as we are, we don't always recall it correctly or maybe even fully. We don't remember all of the story. We remember parts and pieces of it that meant a lot to us, that made us feel a certain way, and kind of sometimes miss the point. Uh, verses uh, 13 through 16, excuse me, that we're going to look at today. If you've been at the ch- in the church for any period of time, you probably have a very strong aroma connected to this passage. You've heard it preached a hundred different times at mission conferences around the world. And this is one of the great missionary passages of the scriptures and how they're preached. And the problem is that's certainly there, but it's not the fuller point. It's not the the fuller picture. It's like getting exciting about your Thanksgiving meal and remembering how much you love the Thanksgiving meal because that one cup of coffee is excellent. I'm sure it was excellent, but that's not the meal. That's one piece of the meal. It's one part of the meal. It's not the fuller picture. What's taking place in verses 13 through 16 is incredibly significant because here we have in the Gospel of Matthew telling the story of Jesus as the high king. The high king who has stepped out of heaven and stepped inside humanity, stepped inside time and space, and is creating his new kingdom inside creation. This king is the one who was prophesied all the way back from Genesis chapter 3 and has now come in glory even as uh, he's reigning. Chapter 1, laying out that he's the king of the Jews. Chapter 2, even laying out the uniqueness of this king. He's uh, heralded by the angels. He's born of a virgin. He's this unique person in human history. Chapter 5 marks the change, though, as now we begin to hear him explaining what his kingdom looks like. 
What's important to this king? What are his values? What does it look like to be a part of his kingdom? And honestly, as we listen to the previous section read, these these are not easy things. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, I don't like being poor in spirit. I like being full of myself. You can laugh at that. It is a joke. It's all right. I don't like mourning. I don't like grieving. I don't like crying. Out of all the emotions in human existence, I think crying is one of the ones I enjoy the least. I hate crying. We don't want to be meek. We want to be the boss. We want to be tough. We want to be strong. We, we don't want to be these things. And then as it builds and it builds and it seems to get a little bit tougher and a little bit tougher, he gets to verses 10 and 11 and you think, this is what your kingdom is. Blessed are those who are persecuted and and taking it in the general. And then verse 11, blessed are you, people of God listening, blessed are you when others mock you, hate you, persecute you, lie about you, say evil things about you because of Jesus. Blessed are you. And it's interesting, the older I get, the more I realize that much of the bravery that we hear about in the world is actually false bravado. Much of the bravery that we hear about in the world is is actually, there's just lies. The real moments of bravery are oftentimes the ones that happen in secret, where a person walks into a struggle that they've known before, and they hit it head on and face on, and nobody ever finds out about it. The challenge, I think, if we're actually really genuinely going to wrestle with the text is that in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, when it lays out what it means to be a part of the kingdom, it builds to what does it look like? Well, at the end of the day, it means the world is going to hate you because you are different than they are. There's an immeasurable gap between what it means to be a Christian and what it's not. And I I don't mean to just simply profess. I mean to know the Lord Christ, to have the Spirit of God living within you. It's an immeasurable gap. It's the greatest us and them inside creation anywhere. But the reality is most of us, at the end of the day, are cowards. I mean, if we knew that verse 11 was going to come into fruition this Sunday morning... If we knew that there would have been people waiting at the front doors to revile us, to persecute us, and to utter all kinds of evil against us falsely, how would attendance be this morning? Would we have 45 in the first service and 55 in the second service? I mean, let's be honest. Let's be honest. Be be really brutally candid with yourself. Would we have that many people in, in worship? The short answer is you know it, right? No, no way. Absolutely not. Because we're all cowards. That's what we are at our core. We're all cowards. And some of us are unusually stubborn in our cowardice and say, well, I would come just to be stubborn. But realistically, we struggle with that. Verses 13 through 16 are the answer to that cowardice. Because realistically, if we're going to be honest, all of us deep down inside are afraid. 
And all of us deep down inside are afraid to take a stand. And all of us deep down inside, are, we don't like things to be hard. We don't like to be isolated. We don't like to be singled out. And we don't like to be uncomfortable for Jesus. We just don't. You don't believe me? Have a conversation with me about the air conditioning later. We don't like to be uncomfortable for the cause of Christ Verse 13 begins in correcting our thinking. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's interesting, and kind of point one here is, uh, by the power of the Spirit, God's people are, in their essence, inherently useful. If you like philosophy, the word is ontologically. It means as a part of your very being. God's people are inherently useful. They're, they're made that way. It's, it's part of how we exist. It, what it, it's what it means to be human in the cause of Christ. Now, we're going to have to be a little bit of kind of grammar nerds here for a moment. And I'm going to take you into the text. Look in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. Most of us, when we read that, we read that correctly in the grammar, but then we make a really big shift in our head. We switch it from present active indicative to future tense in our brain. And what that means grammar-wise is it goes like this. We read, you are the salt of the earth, and we think, I will be the salt of the earth. And those are two completely different statements. Jesus is interestingly here, when he's speaking to his disciples, when he's speaking to the people of his kingdom, he's making a present statement indicating their current reality. You are currently, right now, in this moment, you are the salt of the earth. Not future tense, you will become. Not subjunctive. You might be, you may be, you could be, you might possibly grow to become. It's present tense, active. God's doing it indicative. You are currently the salt of the earth. And there's a reason for this. And the reason actually, interestingly, has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with how the process of salvation works. This is how the process of salvation works. God, before the foundation of the world, planned out who would be his. And then inside creation, he begins the process of salvation by calling them. That call takes all different kinds of forms. It might have been a a faithful grandmother who told you about the faith. It might be a faithful preacher trying to explain Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16 to you. It could be that crazy neighbor that told you about Jesus that you forgot about, but later in life you remember. He uses all sorts of people to participate in that call. But then when it's time for uh, change to happen, his spirit comes inside the person of God, changes them from the inside out, so that through faith and repentance they are bonded with the Lord Jesus. Now that process is the key. The spirit comes in, the spirit transforms, and then the spirit bonds to Jesus. Which means that the essence 
of a person who is, and I don't just mean says they're a Christian because we live in the South and like 98% of people say that. I mean people who actually know Jesus. The reality is they are, we are by definition, by essence, by nature, joined with the Spirit and therefore joined with Christ. The result of it is, is we're made new from the inside out. When I said the us and them gap between those that know Jesus and those that don't, it is immeasurably huge because all they have is themselves and their sin. We have the Spirit of God living on the inside, joining us with Christ and transforming our very nature. Now, does that mean we don't make stupid decisions? No. I wish. I wouldn't have a job, but I wish. But it means that we're transformed from the inside and we're transformed. And the moment the Spirit works, it's why the Scriptures then go to talk about the people of God saying, you are holy. Positionally, you you are holy before the Lord. You're transformed. You are unique. You're different. You are in God's kingdom, a special thing, a special work of His glory. You are the salt of the earth. Now again, I started out with saying we remember this passage, but we remember it incorrectly. And part of that is because we remember it, most of us, equating salt with our actions, most of us. That's how we've heard it taught many, many times before. We're saying, well, you live a different life. That's not what Jesus means. He means you're a different person. <laughs> The the different works, the different lifestyle, the different behaviors, all of those things are just kind of an outworking of the fact that you're a different person. You're new on the inside. Other parts of the scripture say, describe it, you were dead on the inside before, you're made alive on the inside now. You had a, a dead heart of stone, it's taken out, you're given a beating heart of flesh. It's a totally different person. You're positionally joined with Jesus. And by His nature, you are transformed in your nature. What this means is that God's people are already currently different. It's why Jesus can use the present active indicative instead of using the subjunctive or the imperative. You shall be salt or uh, using the future. You will be. He's saying you already currently are. You've been changed. You've been transformed. If you are the, the people of God, you already have the spirit of God dwelling in you. If you listened to the sermon last week, working through the Beatitudes, saying, well, how am I supposed to do these things? How am I supposed to be meek? Guess what? You can't do it on your own. You have the spirit of God living within you. You've been transformed. Now, there's a a, a kind of false logic here that many of us would maybe be tempted to do is say, well, if the Spirit lives in me and He's the one in charge of it, well, I'll just throw my hands up and do nothing. Right? If if by nature I'm salt, if, if by nature I'm made to be useful in the kingdom of God, well, I'll just throw my hands up and say, well, Jesus will take care of it all. Right? Jesus, take the wheel. You just do it all. And he has done it all in terms of of dying on the cross and being raised and, and, and saving us. That's actually, interestingly, again, not the point that he's making here, though. 
You are the salt of the earth. You are, by definition, by nature, you are useful. That's what salt represented in the time in which this is written. It's interesting how our current doctors and our current affluence has maybe ruined this a little bit for us, where now, if you're my age and you go to the doctor, what does the doctor say every time, no matter what? Right? Less fried foods, less salt, more exercise. It doesn't matter who you are. That's what you will always hear. Salt is treated as the enemy in our current culture. In the culture in which this is written, salt was the hero. Right? It, it was one of the things, they, they called it one of the necessities of life. You didn't live without salt because your body doesn't function without salt. We just happen to be rich enough that we eat too much of it. They never seem to have enough. It's interesting, it had so many uses. It was a preservative. How did you keep things from going bad when you don't have a refrigerator? Salt. How do you season things when you don't have a gigantic, you know, rack of spices where you can put paprika or whatever else? You you use salt. How did you purify things? You use salt. Interesting, many of your Old Testament sacrifices uh, for the purity of the sacrifice, you had to mix salt in with the sacrifice. It was necessary for nutrition. What's Gatorade? Why did the University of Florida pioneer Gatorade as part of their college football program? They recognized that water was not simply enough to replenish their athletes' hydration, so they mixed salt with sugar and put it in a drink. It's necessary for nutrition in life. It's uh, perhaps one of the most useful substances in common life. The interesting thing, though, is that not every use of salt is equally useful. In fact, actually, you know I tend to dislike sermon titles and never, ever use them. This is the only sermon I have ever thought about putting a title on in the most recent years. And it would have been this, Don't Be a Moron. That would have been the name of the sermon, but it was was very catchy, and you should not be a moron. Uh, The reason, actually, is because that's what Jesus says in the text. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt is a moron, how shall its saltiness be, resol- be restored? That's actually literally the word. It's moronthe. Jesus is interestingly making a point saying, look, salt is by its essence, by its nature. It, it is a useful thing. It is salty by its nature. But not all salt is equally salty. In fact, in the world in which they lived, there were multiple kinds of salt that you would use. Some of it was taken from the Mediterranean Sea. It was pure salt. It tasted good. You would use it. It would be like what we would have on our dinner table today. Uh, They also had Dead Sea salt, which was extremely salty, but had gypsum mixed in it, which is, by the way, what's in our wall board. We know that as drywall. Uh, It was mixed in with their salt. And it was good when you got it fresh, but after a little bit, it started to taste foul. And so, interestingly, when it has lost its taste, the word there is literally moron, and what it, uh, the actual word means is tasteless, silly, and foolish. Uh, it's translated here as loses its taste, but when it becomes tasteless, silly, and foolish, uh, what is it useful for? Well, it's still useful because salt is by definition useful. It just becomes its least useful form. And what happens here? Well, the one I didn't tell you about out of all its uses is fertilizer. In the ancient Near East, in the time in which this is written, one of the primary things that salt was used for uh, is when it went foul and you couldn't use it on your table anymore and you didn't use it for anything else, you would sprinkle it in very small quantities out in your fields and it was used as a mild fertilizer when done in small quantities. That was its last use 
the last way to reclaim the value of the product. Jesus, interestingly here, has made a statement, you are the salt. You are useful by nature. That is how God has made us. You have the Spirit of God living in you. Now, some of you are determined, determined to minimize that usefulness. Thus, don't be a moron. Some of us, it seems like if you look back at our lives, we've, we've been determined to try to limit the use that God would have for us and, and seemingly try to make sure that we're functioning like the fertilizer in the kingdom. I honestly don't want to be the fertilizer of the kingdom. Maybe you do. It's not the task I would prefer to be. I think Jesus is making an interesting point here. First, obviously, that uh, we are inherently useful by our nature. But two is um, our usefulness is, is largely determined by how much we're fulfilling the Beatitudes mentioned in the previous section. You know, in, in our current kind of what have you done for me lately mentality, so much of the church determines usefulness by public gifting. Think, oh, well, pastor's the most useful man in the church because he's up front. Maybe I don't feel useful because I'm not up front. Or I don't get to, get to use my gifts in a way that's public. I don't get to, and we, we have totally the wrong metric. <laughs> totally the wrong metric for what is useful in the kingdom of God. Interestingly, you want to know what's useful in the kingdom of God? Poor in spirit. Mourning. Meekness. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Mercy. Purity of heart peacemaking, and persecution. That's what's useful in the kingdom of God. Now, the Lord has equipped you for ministry. He's equipped all of us for ministry. If you're joined with Christ Jesus, again, you can't get away from this. Remember how I said, if you're joined with the Spirit, what the Spirit does is He changes you, He makes you useful, He equips you to serve. Now, what are you equipped to do? Unfortunately, again, many of our conversations, what are you equipped to do sort of conversations, focus around what are your gifts and how can you give them to the church? That's a wrong trajectory. The real question is, how can you be poor in spirit? How can you mourn? How can you be meek? How can you hunger and thirst for righteousness? How can you showcase the usefulness of the Spirit of God in you by being blessed in God's kingdom? This is the point, I think, that actually much of the modern conversation about uh, men and women serving in the church is missing. I mean, the answer is really clear. Women are not supposed to be preachers. That's abundantly clear. There's no kind of way around that in the scriptures. But on top of that, so much of the conversation is, is tried to handle, well, that's because preachers are more useful. Wrong. The meek are more useful. The mourner is more useful. The hungering and thirsting for righteousness, that's more useful. We've got the wrong metric. We're, we're actually, in this case, we're using the world's ethic. We're using the world's value system to evaluate church priorities. Jesus is bringing something completely different to the table. Look, you've been transformed by the Spirit of God. Because you've been transformed by the Spirit of God, go live in a way that fits that transformation. Behave according to the nature that he's given you. Don't be a moron. 
14, very quickly, he compounds this and builds on it. You're the light of the world. Now, this is, to me, the most intriguing one out of them all, because who is the light of the world? Jesus is the light of the world. But interestingly, Jesus here is saying, look, I'm the light of the world. You're the light of the world. Okay, well, again, why is that? Why are we able to say that the the actual light of the world is then thereby saying we're the light of the world? It's that that unifying thing. If we're union with Christ, if we're joined with him, his glory is worked out in us. His character is worked out in us. We are transformed in him. We are, by definition, creatures of light now. We are creatures of holiness. We are creatures of goodness. We are transformed. And again, not because of our ability, not because of our merit, not because of our goodness, but because the Spirit of God lives within the people of God and joins us to Christ Jesus. And in doing that, we are changed. You cannot get around that. Again, notice it's present active indicative. You are light. It's not uh, future. You will be. It's not imperative, please go be. It's not subjunctive, you might become. You already are the light if you are in Christ. Now here's where I would then, I guess, make an application. You're the light of the world, Jesus says. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Again, transformationally, like you've, you've been made different. You're uh, by nature a creature of light. It doesn't matter where you are. You're going to radiate the light of God. You're going to radiate, uh, as Paul would say, the aroma of Christ will uh, pour off of you no matter what. But that doesn't mean that every light is used equally well. I mean, Put a little differently, it's, uh, a flashlight is inherently useful, but if you can't find it when the power goes out, it's not really that helpful. I probably have 15 flashlights in my house. I know where none of them are currently. And if we were to lose power, it would take me an hour to find them. And by that point, the power would be back on. Likewise here, and this is where verse 16, Jesus is going, look, in the same way, you are creatures of light. You've been transformed. You have godliness in you. The Spirit of God works within you. You have Christ uh, residing in you. Therefore, don't try to hide it. Put in a slightly different way, don't be a moron. Don't, Don't try to hide the light. Work with the Spirit of God instead of working against Him. Instead of frustrating His efforts, instead of, as Paul would say, grieving Him in His ministry. Work with Him. Labor with Him. Fight the good fight in godliness, in sanctification, so that your good works will shine everywhere. So the light will shine more usefully. That's why we put lights in the ceiling. Why? So they shine everywhere. Doesn't make sense to put them behind the curtain or to put them over there in the corner where they're not going to shine everywhere. Instead of fighting against the ministry of the Spirit, work with Him in this process of sanctification. Well, what does that mean? Well, a couple of things. One, the Spirit's promise to use the Bible. It is amazing how many Christians get frustrated that they are living a very troublesome life and they never read the Bible. Or when they do, they read it and go, oh, that was neat and sometimes it'd be helpful and then shut it and then move on and then try to think through their struggles without using the Bible. Instead of confronting whatever circumstance we have and say, what does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible say about a new building? 
What does the Bible say about how to pastor a church during COVID? What does the Bible say about a church that's meeting in two services, that's divided in, in worship on Sunday? What does the Bible say? Guess what? It answers all of these questions, not directly as we might like. But it is intriguing how many Christians, again, fill their lives with difficulty, largely because they're working against the Spirit. This is one of the great points that's made in Scripture. The Spirit doesn't use His own voice. He uses the Scriptures. you, You have to remember that. He uses the Word as His voice. If you're not reading the voice, you're not going to hear from Him. The one that lives inside you and is transforming you, you won't hear from Him if you don't have the Word. Secondly and finally, It is amazing how many Christians struggle with this largely because they grow discouraged at their failures. And it's interesting, glass half full, glass half empty. It depends on the kind of day as to which one I guess I am. But it's intriguing when God looks at his people, it's always a glass all full. It's never a glass half full, it's a glass all full. It's intriguing that the people that he's talking to when he's preaching the sermon, most of them are going to leave him at some point along the way. Some of them are going to participate in crucifying him. And the rest of them are going to run away from him when he's being crucified. And yet, interestingly, he's calling them the very names that he himself possesses. You're the light of the world. That's not the one I would have said to those people. Right? I would have said, you're going to be the people who betray me and stab me in the back. He knows that. But interestingly, he doesn't do that. And it's interesting how so much, because we forget the promise of God defining who we are, it cripples us in our obedience and fulfilling God's command. It started out with that opening illustration of how smell is connected to memory. One of the struggles I think that we have is that um, We focus on the smells that remind us of how we perceive ourselves instead of interestingly focusing on the ones that tell us how God perceives us. I'm just going to go and be honest with you. He knows you way better than you know you, and yet you listen to yourself far more than you listen to Him. So many of the problems of the people of God could be solved if we simply contemplated his promises, his definitions of who we are a bit more frequently. And Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you feed us in the scriptures, and we ask now that you would even feed us at the table for Christ's sake. Amen.